Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Robert A. Gattenby. He's a professor. Uh, he's at the Moffitt Cancer Center. I'm going to talk about uh, some of his work. So, Robert, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Yeah, if you would tell me about your work with cancer, how long have you been in it and what, what are you working on? Well, I started a very long time ago. I guess when I, I had a physics background before I went to medical school. And then my first job out of training was at the Fox Chase Cancer Center. And one of the things that struck me is, of course, whenever you're at a cancer center, you want to learn as much about the disease as possible because you want to kind of make a difference. And in trying to learn more about cancer biology, what I found was that there are a huge number of papers. I mean, just just massive amounts of data on on the subject, but there was no really coherent you know sense of what was going on. So in physics, they always talk about first principles and and what are the kind of primary you know, dynamics that are involved. And with cancer, it was all over the place. And so what became clear to me was that this was a this was a, a very complex dynamic system. And one of the things that physicists have learned, you know, a century ago was that uh, complex dynamic systems with nonlinear uh, interactions have to be modeled. And so I, I started getting interested in in applying mathematical models to cancer with the idea that we could better have a better understanding of it. And the the basis for that really is that human intuition is very linear. While and so when whenever you try to work with a nonlinear system, you don't uh, predict it very well. I, a, a favorite story of mine is, is Benjamin Franklin, who had a, uh, he, in, in 1756, wanted to watch a lunar eclipse, but a big nor'easter came in. And if you are from New York, you'll, you know, nor'easters, the wind's coming out of the Northeast. And it was very interesting because Franklin was, was a great scientist. And like scientists of his day, he thought that winds could storm. And so since it was coming from the Northeast, he assumed that his brother in Boston would not be able to see the eclipse either, but and was shocked to learn that the that the storm arrived in Boston after the eclipse was over. And it, and it's a great example, you know, because it's intuitively obvious <laughs> that the wind carries the storm and it's also dead wrong. And nonlinear systems like the weather uh, are, are typical examples of things that really have to be mastered using uh, computational models. Um, and and okay. so I think that in Thinking about cancer and about the dynamics that run cancer, we have to accept that they may not be intuitively obvious. And so mathematical models are necessary to really gain a, a full understanding. And that's when it, that started, and I hate to even say it, is 1990 or so. And I've been working on this kind of topic ever since. Okay. So, I mean, what is some of the thinking in cancer that you consider to be either linear or not effective, and how, how does it need to be changed? Well, I think the most recent things that I've been working on is this idea that if you give cancer therapy, you always want to give more. The, the more, the better. The, the, the larger number of cancer cells you kill, the better the patient does. And while that's true in, in a setting where you can cure the cancer, when the cancer has spread you know, over the body, in general, that's not a curative strategy anymore. And in that setting, when you, as you try to kill more and more cells, what you, you've forgotten is that there's a, there's a, a feedback mechanism, which is the cancer uh, cells, like any evolving 
population can learn to adapt. And what happens when you apply the intense selection pressure of massive doses of chemotherapy is that you really select for resistance. And, and you've also cleared the environment of competitors for those immune cells. So you not only select for them, but you allow them to proliferate very rapidly without any, there's really no constraints on them at all. So what, what would be a better solution versus the, uh, you know, the current, like a watch and wait, or does that not happen very often in cancer? Like what, what's, what would be better? Well, watch and wait is okay until it becomes symptomatic. And then of course you can't just stay, uh, keep it that way. But what we've done and, and have now carried into the clinic is to try a strategy in which you just, you, you give some chemotherapy or give whatever therapy you're going to give. You just knock the cancer back a little bit. You knock it down. But then you withdraw the, the treatment. And, and as counterintuitive as that sounds, the goal is to let this tumor grow back. But the thing is that if, if it's growing when you don't, when you're not applying, you're not applying a uh, selection force for resistance, the sensitive cells, because generally they're fitter than the resistant cells in the absence of therapy, because they don't have the molecular mechanism, they don't, they don't have that, the cost of whatever the resistance is. Uh, they will grow preferentially to the stem cells. In fact, they'll suppress the growth of stem cells. And what happens is that when you then come back to the end of that cycle, you can treat the tumor again with the same therapy. Uh, it, it hasn't become resistant. So you just keep cycling through that, that kind of, you know, give a, give a dose and then stop and let, let the patient, uh, let the tumor grow back, but, but it's still sensitive. I'm not sure I understand it. The resistant cells are the ones that survive, let's say, a round of chemo, but uh, those cells uh, now can proliferate. If you give continuous dose of chemotherapy to a tumor, you can get tremendous kill of the tumor cells, but what you leave behind are the resistant cells. They're, they're typically a, a small population there. You, you get rid of all the cells that can kill with the chemotherapy, but that small population is still there, and then it continues, it grows back. So that yeah. what happens is that now you've got recurrent tumor and the tumor is resistant. And, and so you can no longer use that therapy. And in fact, once it's resistant to one therapy, it's often resistant to a whole bunch. So those resistant guys are the bad guys. If you, now, if you could cure the cancer, if you could give the chemotherapy and you can eradicate all the cancer cells and cure the patient, that's, that's great. You, you, you know, that's what you should do. But if you can't, and that's true of most common metastatic cancers. That is to say, once the cancer is spread throughout the body, curative chemotherapy is, is rarely obtained. So most of the time, you're just treating to palliate. And so the goal here is instead of trying, uh, since you know you cannot cure the, the patient, giving massive doses to try makes no sense because what you've done, what, what you're doing in that case is that you're maximally selecting for the resistance. And, and this is well known and this is called competitive relief. So instead of doing that, what you do is just give a little bit of therapy and, and you deliberately leave cells that are sensitive and, and then you withdraw the therapy. So those sensitive cells that you've left behind then will proliferate, but they will proliferate in, in, at the expense of the resistant cells. And so the tumor will come back to, to its original state, but when it does come back, you can treat it with the same treatment again. You could just, so what you're doing is never applying constant pressure to select for uh, resistance. And what you're doing is using the cells that you can control, the ones that are, that are sensitive to your drug, to control the cells that you can't otherwise touch. Well, uh, but why perturb the tumor at all? I mean, does it, with well, a little bit to, of therapy, as you call it, will it, what will it do? I mean, will it shrink it enough or will it 
I mean, what will they do? So you, you treat because the patient's symptomatic. You know, at some point, uh, the burden of tumor uh, begins to cause complications. So you, what you want to do is knock the tumor back, re, you know, remove uh, or, or eliminate the, any symptoms that are being caused by the tumor. At the same time, you, 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 what you want to do is to maintain the use of that drug for as long as possible. And so, and so that's the idea. But, but ordinarily, what, what it suggests is don't treat until you have to. And when you do, don't treat with mass, massive amounts of drugs. Just treat with enough to uh, knock the tumor back, but not so much that you'll select for resistance, uh, making your treatment useless. Yeah, it just seems like in cancer therapy that everything is like, hurry up, we got to hit this right away. We got to do something now. Right. So that tends to be, so it's kind of a, again, it's, it's sort of a non-intuitive approach. It's not, it's, you know, linear thinking is you want to kill as many cancer cells as you can and you want to treat the tumor as early as possible, even when it's not symptomatic. And w- what you're doing in that, in the process is that you're giving up your drugs. You're selecting for resistance to your first line therapies, which are usually your best there. And, and so what we've done in, in this sort of thing, so we've, we've done some, some, some trials is that we can extend the responsiveness of, of cancer to the therapy by over a year by, by simply cycling it that way. And in the process, the patient isn't being treated about half the time which is very much something they like because, it, you know, they don't have the toxicity, they don't have the cost. And so it gives them a better quality of life while also extending their, their life expectancy. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. So what kind of cancers does this appear to work for and which ones does it not? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now, back to the show. Right now, we've mainly used it for prostate cancer, and, and that's been very successful. We're beginning to use other strategies or similar strategies for other cancers. So we're, we're starting to look at uh, lung cancer um, and ovarian cancer and breast cancer. So those are the, the others that we're we're looking at, but it took a number of years of we've worked out mathematical models and then preclinical uh, meaning uh, experiments in animals before going into people, and and so it's we've been very cautious about doing this so that you know we, we since it, it is so counterintuitive in a way and, and it's certainly not consistent with the way most cancer therapies are are, are applied. You know we we've, we've been very careful about applying this and, and, and making sure that we're first not doing any harm. But, but now I think as we've, as these clinical trials have matured and we've seen that they are quite effective and we've actually gone to gone back to the clinical trials and used mathematical models to um, understand what was going on, that we can be more confident that, that, that this kind of strategy is, is broadly applicable. Well, how much in prostate cancer, for instance, how much of the tumor will chemo take get, uh, or mitigate each time it's used? 
And then what's the so, length between treatments? Is there like any averages showing up? Yeah. So what we've done is that we give the therapy, there's a serum marker for prostate cancer and it's called PSA, prostate specific antigen. And that's usually used to guide therapy. And so what we do is that in each patient, we, we apply a therapy and we wait till the PSA goes down by 50% of its pretreatment value. And at that point, we stop. And then we don't give the treatment back until the PSA goes back to the pretreatment value, and then we do it again. Typically, the, the, depending on the different on the, on the stage, so these are all men with metastatic prostate cancer, but the treatment now is the two different parts, two different time within the, 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 the typical treatment arc. So uh, depending on which one, the time between treatment varies from about four to six months. And so they will be typically off treatment for anywhere from two to three months, although that can actually go up to about a year and a half, depending on, again, a lot of underlying dynamics, and it, it varies considerably from person to person. And so uh, men typically hate the, the therapy for prostate cancer because it's feminizing. Essentially, you turn off all the testosterone in the body, and men generally dislike this. It's, it uh, often has cognitive and psychological effects. It can cause bone thinning. It can cause cardiac issues. And, and I, I would say it's almost universally hated by men. So the ability to not have that as a continuous process is very popular. I mean, the men like it a great deal. What, one of the therapies is called abiraterone, which is a kind of a second-line therapy, but it costs $6,000 a month. For this treatment. And so even with insurance, some men have a great deal of trouble just paying the copay. And so, you know, not having that, to, you know, not having to spend that money, you know, half the time, it, they, they actually, it's about 60% of the time they're not being treated. So, so, oh, so double benefit. They, yeah. Yes. There's not, there's the, what's, what's called financial toxicity now, meaning that the cost of it is also less in addition to the, to, to whatever toxicity that they might, they might have with it. And um, what we've shown is that they, the time to progression, which is mean, meaning that the, the time from when they start therapy to when the treatment is not working anymore, typically, if you give standard dosing, is about 14 months. And we are over 30 months. So that it's a, we, we've, in this first group, we've increased the, the life expectancy, basically the time that they're, they're being treated by 16 months. And we think that we can do actually substantially better based on the mathematical analysis that we did of the trial. We actually think relatively small changes in the, in the, in the way we apply the dosing can considerably increase the, uh, the time to progression beyond what we've already achieved. So uh, the results, I think, are very promising. We have other trials going on. How does the chemo affect the primary tumor versus the metastases? You guys would actually have insight into it because, you know, the person's around for longer and you have breaks between the treatments. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Sure. So we only treat men with metastatic disease. If, uh, you know, most men with prostate cancer have treatment, local treatment in their prostate, and that's all they need. They survive and they do fine. However, when men develop metastases from prostate cancer, meaning that it spreads to the bone or to their lymph nodes, then they have to, that's when the, the hormone therapy begins. And there is no cure for that. Despite very good treatment, none of them are curative. So we're only doing this in men that have no options. There's no curative um, approach. Right. But how does it affect the primary tumor versus the metastases? 
usually the primary tumor has been removed by the time that we're treating them. Okay. So it's just the metastases that it would affect, but it still works well enough that it beats them back to a point where the person has less burden and they're able to function for a longer period of time? Yes. They actually, since they're not being treated, you know, most of the time, and we always, you know, the treatment is always meant to be to make sure that they it's that they don't have symptoms. You know, in general, the quality of, of life is, is quite good. I mean, they, they don't have the symptoms of the tumor or the side effects of the therapy most of the time. So, you know, 60% of the time, there's there's basically no therapy being given at all. And in the 40% of time that they are getting treated, they're they're getting treated with exactly what they would have. Anyway, I mean, we, we, we don't, it's no more or less toxic than it was um, just with standard of care. Well, what's happening in the in-between times? You know, are, you, are there any biopsies done or like what's observed to the, uh, the metastatic lesions? We don't, they just get blood tests for their PSA every month. And um, otherwise they... So, well, no, I know um, they don't get treated, but why not use it as a time of observation to well, see what, what else is happening with the metastases, you know? Yeah, I mean, they get routine blood tests and, and imaging, and that's pretty much all. There, there's not not much else to look for at that point because the, the tumor is, uh, you know, is stable. So we do some things for the research, you know, as we look for certain markers and things. But from from man's point of view, it's really pr- pretty, I mean, not much happens. Which, which, when you have cancer, it's not bad. It's not a bad thing. Well, again, something has to happen. I mean, otherwise they wouldn't need the treatments again. So I just wonder, oh, you know, the, what's the... the... Coming, the, the yes, the tumor is coming yeah. back. Well, I mean, we're not giving, their ther- giving them therapy in general. The tumor is, you know, will start to come back and we will treat again when it returns to its initial state. But they don't usually notice that. I mean, it's not really, it doesn't cause symptoms. And we don't image them more frequently or get more blood tests, you know, get blood tests more frequently than they would if they were just being treated regularly. Right. But what's noticed about the regrowth of the tumors? Anything different, special? They just regrow at a steady state? The cell composition the yes. same, different? You know? Yeah, that's and that's what we want. We want them to be, they basically are growing the way we want them, which means that the, the sensitive cells proliferate at the expense of the resistant ones. So what we do is 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 maintain a uh, a pretty it's an oscillatory stable state uh, or pretty close to it and that is what we're looking for so the the in the in the language of of, of mathematics the the treatment is is considered a driving function meaning that we're to, we're, we are trying to drive the cancer system into a near steady state that's oscillating. And in, in most of the patients got what we thought we would drive them into this oscillatory, oscillatory state, but that the, that the resistant cells come back at each cycle so that eventually we lose control, which, which is what we predicted. However, about a quarter of the patients are still under treatment after almost five years, far longer than you would have expected based on the original model. So we, we actually think that in some of them, we do actually get to a, an actual steady state where they simply oscillate around. The tumor itself is not changing significantly over, over months or even years. And so we just keep cycling back and forth. Oh, so what, what percentage of people will last seemingly indefinitely or for a long time? Uh, right now, a quarter. What we've learned from the mathematical modeling we've done on this is that we think that we can get that kind of stable oscillatory state, significant majority of patients with, with subtle changes, in, with small changes in the protocol. 
So we think that's an achievable goal in most patients. And, and so that the next generation of these trials is going to move in that direction where we, we, we've learned from the original trials that we could have done better. And, and that's, that's how we're going to design new trials. And that's one of the advantages of using mathematical models to, to run these trials, because when you are over, what can, what, what can happen is use the trial results to update the mathematical model to, to identify key parameters. And then you can apply those, that model to every patient that was on the trial with the goal of understanding what we could have done better. Uh, how, how could we achieve a better outcome in each man? And, and we learned from that. And so I, I think our next trial, I think, know a lot more. And I think that we can go from about 25% of patients with a very long-term you know, oscillations to probably about an 80% uh, kind of result of that kind of outcome. So what does the protocol look like in the, uh, in the on times versus off? So when, they, when they're being treated, they get standard treatment. Give them a dose of drug that they would have received under standard of care. So it's, it's really no different. It's just that we typically turn it off. We, we treat them for maybe a, a month or two and then stop. It depend, depending on how quickly the PSA goes down. Otherwise, it's, a, it's identical to the standard therapy. Okay, I see. And then they'll be they'll be off it on nothing for four to six months, just, and they'll be back on. Yes, it's just it's just an on off kind of thing. Now there there are much more complex approaches that that we that we could do. The, the but but doing it in a clinic in, in a clinical setting is is challenging. It's just not the way things are usually done. And so uh, we elected to start at a, at a, a, as, as simple as possible in integrating evolution into clinical therapy. As we get more sophisticated and as we get our clinical machinery open to doing, do, doing some additional strategies, then we, we can do that as well. So, for example, and one of the things we're now doing is not only measuring PSA, which is the, the tumor biomarker, we're looking at testosterone levels and, and circulating tumor cells and circulating DNA to gain additional information um, that will allow us to now go to, to add, you know, a second or a third drug to this, but to do it in a way that still maintains the, you know, evolutionary first principles you know, again, with the goal of uh, first maintaining the tumor. And one of the things that we've learned in, the, uh, in these trials is that we might even have ways to use evolution to eradicate uh, cancer that are currently not curable using some of the principles that have been developed in studying extinction. What do you mean? That, what would that look like? Well, so that's, you know, whenever we think about extinctions, um, we all, everybody goes to the dinosaurs, this idea that massive application of evolutionary force just eradicates the whole population. Kind of, in, in some ways, the treatment that we, that we give with this massive chemotherapy uh, kind of mimics that. But the vast majority of extinctions are what are called background extinctions, that there's just, it's just loss of a specific species. And, and you know, those are not, uh, it's, hard to, it's hard to study that in the fossil record. And unfortunately, we are in the Anthropocene that our species, unfortunately, is eradicating others. And as tragic as that is, given us an opportunity to study these background extinctions, to understand how they occur, because there's nothing dramatic that happens you know, in background scenes, it's not like the big, you know, a big meter hit. And, and so we've, we've learned that the, these, um, that typically extinctions, Anthropocene extinctions cause 
by humans is a multi-step thing. And it, it, there's, there's multiple different events that cause it. And what's interesting is that if you look at the sequence, it's, it's a sequence of different perturbations of, of different stresses applied to, to the population. But none of the stresses in itself could cause extinction. It's the combination of things. And so one of, you know, right now and, and for, for centuries, the cancer therapy has looked for magic bullets for this idea that, you know, a single agent will cure cancer. And we always talk about the cure for cancer, a cure for cancer, right. as though it's a thing, as though it's a drug or something. And, but, and so we don't have one. You know, we don't have a magic bullet. We, we know that, you know, even in, in metastatic cancer, even very good drugs, we, and we have a lot of them, even when, when you apply them, even when, when you, you know, massively reduce the tumor volume, uh, it'll always come. And, and that's because of evolution resistance. So we don't have a magic bullet. But what, but what Anthropocene extinctions has, has taught us is that you don't necessarily need a magic bullet to cause extinction. You just need, you need a sequence of perturbations, a sequence of applied stressors. But none of those stressors has to be in itself something that can cause extinction. It's the combination of the sequence of events. And so we've begun to think now in terms of how we can apply different therapies, a sequence in a way that similar to the evolutionary dynamics of, of Anthropocene extinctions to actually cause it. And, and so that's a, an additional strategy. These are related uh, because the evolution dynamics are, are surprisingly overlapping, but, but it is a related kind of strategy. So it, it, it may not... So there, not be, there may not be a cure for cancer, but there may be a strategy, a set of principles that can be used to eradicate cancer. So what are some of those principles? What else have we discovered besides this pulsing of therapy? Well, so, so for that, it, it happens that it's actually being used right now, and, but the, the people that do it uh, didn't realize. So the, 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 the cancer that's most commonly cured right now is leukemia. It's, it's pediatric leukemia that, you know, this has been studied so extensively. It's obviously a big deal, for, and it's the most common cancer in children. And so, you know, enormous amounts of have been have poured into treating that. And, and currently, about 95% of the kids are cured. And, and the way they do it is that they they first apply a, a, a therapy that is, is very effective, and it's called induction therapy. What they learned was that at the end of that, you, you often can't find cancer in the bone marrow or in the blood. They know historically is that if you don't do something at that point, it comes back. So, so that's very much at the, at the state kind of that we get some adults. So, for example, a, a man with metastatic prostate cancer, first line therapy, the androgen deprivation therapy, you can you can get the PSA, the again, the, the serum marker, to either normal or undetectable in 95% of that. So it's extremely effective, and yet it's never curative. And what they learned by trial and error in pediatric leukemia is that even when you can't see the tumor, even when the tumor is just very small, can't stop. And you can't keep giving the same therapy because the, whatever is left behind is resistant. So you, you have to, even when you can't see the treatment, the, the cancer, you, you have to apply and then again. And so they, then they do the sequence of therapies, treating even when they can't see the, the cancer. In adult cancer therapy, we basically, they, the mantra is that you give chemotherapy continuously at high dose until progression, meaning that you don't change therapy until the tumor has progressed. And you can now measure the, the next tumor so that you can treat with your second line therapy. So never, never treat unless you can measure the outcome. The problem is that 
if you can see it, and uh, a tumor is visible at maybe a cubic centimeter or two cubic centimeters, roughly a billion cancer cells are present in every cubic centimeter. So you don't change therapy until you've got billions of cancer cells that have that are resistant, and that's way too late. So the time to to treat and to change your therapy is when you've got the tumor on the ropes, when you've knocked it down, you know, when the PSA is unmeasurable or, or very small. What you know is that is that, that tumor is going to be, come back with 100% certainty that will happen. And so what we're saying is, okay, that's great. You, you did great, but you don't keep treating with that because you've not, everything that's left is, but don't wait till the tumor comes back, hit it now. It's essentially, one of my colleagues says that we treat cancers as though we're, we're in a boxing match. So you knock your opponent down. What do you do? You, well, you, you go back to your corner and you wait for your opponent to get back up again and then you come back into the, into the ring. And, and my thing is this, is, this isn't, it's not a boxing, it's a knife fight to the death. And that means when you knock the, the, the tumor cells down, when, when, when you've got them you know, injured, you've got a, just a small residual population, you don't keep giving the same treatment so that they can come back. You, you you go in and you hit them harder. Well, what do you what do you do that's different? What do you do that's so different? Than chemotherapy. That's when you bring in chemotherapy. So you know, add another treatment, but add it as soon as the PSA goes down, or add a second line hormonal treatment, or you know, add radiation. You know, radiate certain areas of the body, that kind of thing. So it, you need, but but what you need to do is bring in your second third line therapies at that point, and we think that. That is that has the potential to be curative. So, second line is just more chemotherapy, or is it other kinds of therapy? Yeah, well, you, you again, it, it, it's going to vary with each tumor. But for example, when you when you get the PSA very low, that might be a time to add chemotherapy, and then follow that with immunotherapy, and then maybe another chemotherapy. You know, you, you do, but but then you have to know is that small populations are extremely vulnerable. And there's a variety of evolutionary uh, reasons for that. So when you get the tumor down to a small population, what is most vulnerable to is a series of perturbations that don't have to be particularly big, but they have to be one after another after another, and they have to be different. So what begins a an extinction, a background extinction, you know, something like climate change or hunting or disruption of habitat is almost never the perturbation that ultimately causes extinction. It's almost always something different. So rather than trying to give the same therapy, you know, just continuously until progression, is that as soon as you get the population into a small vulnerable state, then you apply a whole series of things. And you don't even have to necessarily apply something extremely effective. It just has to be a little effective because because um, you, as you push the population down, this all becomes uh, the, the dynamics become very complicated, but they, but it's self-reinforcing. And the the, the evolutionary biologists call this extinction vortex, meaning that once a small once a, once a population is starting a small population is going to move toward extinction, you just have to nudge it. You just have to keep nudging it down that pathway. You don't necessarily have to hit it with a hammer. Just keep nudging it. So so that's the that's the idea. And again, it's not the, the goal is not to apply you know, life-threatening doses of treatment, it's really to apply just enough to keep the tumor population going down because the smaller it gets, the more vulnerable it is. And so that's that's the extinction vortex. So the idea is that even if you push it down 10%, you know, that's good. That's, then, then you hit it with something else that pushes it down 
10%. But in, in that process, you, it eventually gets to the point where it cannot recover. And, mm. and at least that's, that's what we've seen in... This is the hypothesis or has this been done? So it is, so it's, it's clearly correct in extinction. So we, we know those dynamics occur. But we think that we see those dynamics in the treatment of childhood leukemia because they have empirically arrived at that, you know, just by trial and error, they got to an extinction strategy. And so we're now beginning to look at clinical trials. So Interesting. How do you characterize the, the strength of a cancer based on cell size? Like what, what kind of factors do you think, um, you, know, you said it's weakened, but weakened how? Is there any, uh, any way to, to quantify that? No, well, not right now. And, and this goes to the, the problem is that the data that we have in clinic is often very sparse. And we need to, uh, as we go forward with this, this is the advantage of having mathematicians and oncologists and evolutionary biologists working together. Because as we do this, we say, well, you know, this is the data that we really need to make this model work. And so we need to start getting that data from the clinic. It's very much like, you know, weather forecasting to come back to the Franklin analogy. You know, the way that we, that we have learned to, to accurately predict weather is that we combine data that we get. You know, we take lots and lots of data from the, from the environment, but we don't take just any data. We take data that they need for their mathematical models, which then go into the high-powered simulations that are ultimately used for the, for the prediction. And then, of course, there's this iterative process where the prediction is paired to the outcomes, and you go backwards and you say, well, what, how could we have done this better? What data do we need to better predict? What are the, you know, are our computer models faulty in some way? And so there's this constant kind of improvement. And those are the, that's kind of the approach that we're taking at Moffitt. We actually have, you know, nine faculty mathematicians uh, in the cancer center. And we have two evolutionary biologists who actively work with the oncologists and the cancer biologists to do these kinds of things. And, and it's a uniquely multidisciplinary, you know, environment. And, but I think that's, you know, it needs to be brought to bear on cancer to make it from a, you know, a fatal disease to something that's tractable that we can cure or at least control with, with high probability. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, when are you going to start clinical trials and what, what will, you know, <laughs> I don't know if you need to say exactly, but what would a clinical trial look like? So the, the first clinical trial is being carried out by Dr. Damon Reed in, in a pediatric population. Kids that get, these usually teenagers, they get tumors that arise in the bone and muscle that are called sarcomas. And if, they, if they're localized, they're curable. But if they spread through the body, they're almost always fatal. They have very good treatment that in the first round, the, the tumors melt away typically over 90% of the time so that... There's often no tumor that's visible anymore, and they're currently the the, the the treatment is just they just keep giving the same therapy, and usually within a few months the tumor recurs and comes back and the kids die. So this is but and I think you know if you were as we talked about extinction therapy, the idea that you know you have this great initial therapy and it and it really knocked the tumor to the mat, but by giving the same therapy you're just you're, you're not finishing it off. And so what, what he's going to be doing in this trial, which is open, is give a therapy until there's a, you know, this tremendous response, and then you add another therapy. You give something else. You give second-line treatment with the, the goal of cure, and, and we'll see how that works. 
makes me very nervous, to be honest. But I, these pediatric oncologists are very remarkable people. Well, very good, Robert. What's the best way for people to find out more and keep tabs on the trials when they come? Well, you can. Um, we have a the, the math department at, at Moffitt is called the Integrative Mathematical Oncology Department (IMO). You can look that up. Uh, we have a Center of Excellence for Evolution-Based Therapy, uh, which also has a website that you can that you can look up. And uh, we have an evolutionary tumor board that uh, meets regularly to help physicians design therapies that are, uh, let's say, maximally evolutionarily informed. So. Those are typical websites. I always respond to emails. I, I always will try to help a patient if I can. Well, very good. Robert, thanks for coming on the podcast. And it's, it's cool well, to see this, uh, this innovative idea, you know? Okay, thank you. Take care. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.